David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. We are in a series on David, and if you haven't already, I highly recommend a full read-through of First and Second Samuel, because these stories, honestly, wild. Like, as I was reading through them, I just kept imagining HBO making a show. Seriously, it would be like rated like Game of Thrones. It's intense, like betrayal, violence, manipulation, scheming for power, literally everyone dying. I haven't finished Game of Thrones, so don't talk to me about it afterward. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm honestly not much of a reader. My bookshelf is literally my Audible app, um, but 10 out of 10, I'm into it. Okay, so quick recap. Samuel is the prophet who anoints the first ever king of Israel, a man after their own heart named Saul. He looked the part. He was definitely the type of king that they thought they wanted, tall, strong, confident, handsome. I imagine him as that one dude at the gym that doesn't do leg day, and like lo but loves a muscle tee, but is like deeply insecure at his core. Um, <laughs> That's, that's Saul in my mind. Saul is only, <laughs> he's only in his role for a couple years, though, before a pretty significant failure of leadership. And the Lord instead promises the future kingship of Israel to a man after his own heart. Enter David. David's just a teenager when we meet him. He's a songwriter, a musician. We love a musician. And just an overall winsome heart-on-his-sleeve type of dude. David's brought first into the king's house as a sort of music therapist, entertainer for King Saul. He becomes fast friends with Jonathan, which Raul spoke about, um, Saul's son. Marries Michal, Saul's daughter, and grows into a celebrated warrior. It's obvious from the get-go that the people can't help but follow his leadership. Because he's not just likable, he has a steadfastness about him. And it sets him apart from Saul, because David's confidence, start to finish, comes from his faith in God. The reason we know so much about the quality and nature of David's faith is twofold. First, because we have the narrative of his life, the choices that he made, as Ben spoke about last week. And the second is what we're going to focus on today. That's through the way he expressed himself to God, the way that he worshipped. So we're going to read uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 23. Amanda, would you like to come up and read that for us? Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offering, offerings excuse me, and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Thanks, Amanda. All right, so what's going on here? Saul has died. David's been anointed king. He conquers the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and for the first time establishes a political center, but maybe more importantly, a sense of home for the people of Israel. 400 years after arriving in the Promised Land, they finally have a monarchy, infrastructure, and the beginnings of stability. It's a pivotal point in their history, and the energy is tangible. So imagine the feeling. We all know what it's like to start a new chapter, especially after an extended period of waiting. Might be moving to a new city, graduating college, starting a new relationship, getting married, or a new job. The list goes on, right? There's an anticipation and an eagerness that comes with the change. The expectation that this is the start of something good. And I think it's fairly easy to put ourselves there on an individual level in modern day America, but now let's try to put ourselves in a collective whole, a biological or chosen family, a church community, an ethnic group, and imagine the feeling of relief, not just for you, but for your children, your friends, your neighbors, people you've suffered with and waited with for literal generations. Finally, the thing you've been waiting for is coming true. This is the scene we step into. David and 30,000 of his men are escorting the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The Ark was essentially a really fancy gold-plated box with relics like the Ten Commandments inside. We've got a mock-up of it for you there. And it had two angels on the lid. It represented the footstool of the throne of God, and it was a symbol of his presence among them. The Ark has a long history that you can read about, including being manipulated for its power, captured by foreign armies, recaptured, and then basically forgotten about. The procession we're reading about today is the first time it's been brought out of storage in only over 20 years, since before Saul became king. Before we even get to the details of the celebration itself, we're told that God blessed the house of Obed-Edom where the Ark was being kept. 
If you read back through the history of the ark, you'll see this pattern. Wherever the ark is held and treated with honor and respect, blessing comes along with it. And I think this is a really beautiful point that's easy to miss. That God wants his presence to be enjoyed. He sets himself apart from the gods of the surrounding nations by the desire to both show love and be loved by his people. So the ark coming into the city is a big deal. And this procession is a loud statement, literally, that God's presence and will is central to the way David will lead the nation. Israel asked for a human king, but David declares through this act that there is a king above himself, and the Lord will be their highest authority. And he holds nothing back. Both here and in 1 Chronicles, where the story is also told, we read that David dons the priestly garments of a linen ephod, enters the city in a procession of loud instruments, horns, trumpets, cymbals, shouting, singing, and dancing. Why? Because God's presence is worth celebrating. He was dancing before the Lord, it says, with all his might. While that behavior seems fairly in line with what we know of David's temperament, it's definitely out of character for a king. We're very comfortable with the idea of an expressive, quirky artist type in this town. So much so that apparently we need a industry night for people with regular jobs <laughs> at Bread. <laughs> but let's try to refrain from imposing our own cultural context on the Bible. There's actually no precedent of a king participating in public dance in the ancient world. We have records of groups that dance professionally or for entertainment, or a few instances of priests dancing in cult rituals, but never a king. And no one knew that better than Michal. Remember, she was raised as the daughter of a king. She knows the protocols and traditions. This display angered her so much that when David returns home to bless his family and household, she meets him outside and lets him have it. If anyone thinks that sarcasm is a new or Western invention, think again. You can taste the disdain dripping from her words when she says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, has honored himself today. So is she just really uptight? There must be more going on here, right? Remember, these are whole humans with whole lifetimes leading up to this moment. You could say, Michal is in her villain era, and you might be right, okay? But I just want to take a few minutes and see how she got there, her origin story, if you will. The stories of women in the Bible are usually oversimplified or just ignored, and so I just want to honor her by telling a bit of her story. Michal is the youngest daughter of Saul. In fact, every time, except for once, she is identified as Michal, daughter of Saul. Pay attention to how her titles trace the arc of her journey. She falls in love with David at a young age and is given to him in marriage as a political move so Saul can retain control over David. Being Saul's daughter also makes her Jonathan's sister, and the two of them develop a special loyalty to David to the point where she lies to her father to help David escape 
when Saul sends men to their home to assassinate him. This is the high point in her character arc. It's her shining moment and the one instance where she is identified as Michal, David's wife. From here, there's a long period of time where David is on the run, hiding in the wilderness and in various towns, as we heard about last week. During this time, David takes two other wives, and Saul gives Michal to another man. We don't know which of those events happened first. What we do know is that David never calls for her during this period. Even though he does meet up with Jonathan and manages to keep two other wives safe and provided for. You see where this is going. About two years later, Saul dies in battle and David is crowned king of Judah, which is in the southern part of the land. One of Saul's sons is made king of the north. David makes a deal to have Michal taken from her new husband, who seems to have a pretty strong attachment to her, and brought back to him. It's possible that love played a part in that decision. But the kingdom is split, and being associated with her also gives David some clout amongst those loyal to the house of Saul. So Michal is uprooted twice. And essentially she's used as a political football by both her father and the man she once loved. As we know, women at this time were at the mercy of the provision of their husbands and their husbands' families. So upholding the standards of honor for their household was an important part not only of her role, but her survival. Her well-being and the well-being of any future children was reliant on the status of her husband. So knowing that, you can almost hear the unspoken, do not mess this up for me again, in her words. Isn't it interesting how much knowing a person's story can change our ability to have compassion for them? It's harder to judge people or hold resentment for them when we hear where they're coming from. There was a woman who worked with me at a church several years ago. It's part of the reason I got so burnt out on ministry. She was so critical of everything I did. My ideas got shot down constantly. She disrespected me in front of the staff. And over time, it really beat me down. I started to become resentful towards her. And that's when my idea of her got simplified. She was no longer a complex human. She was just mean. She was just critical. Until one day she broke down in tears in my office. She apologized for the way she treated me and opened up about some things in her life that I would have never known. It didn't change the fact that her behavior had been hurtful, but it did change my heart posture towards her. Because when people are treated as less than sons and daughters of God, over time, they lose their sense of identity, their inherent divine worth. They start to operate out of scarcity, fear, resentment, and self-preservation instead of love, generosity, humility, and gratitude. My favorite music artist is Ben Howard, and my favorite song of his is called I Forget Where We Were. In it, he describes this condition as the wounded with the wounder's whip. In simpler words, you've probably heard before, hurt people hurt people. So, of course, the question, have you ever been in a relationship with a hurt person? Have you ever been the hurt person? 
Have you ever lost sight of your infinite value and divine calling? I think we probably all have. We encounter Michal here at the lowest point in her arc, where she's once again named the daughter of Saul. Her heart has turned against David, and her fate becomes more similar to her father than the man that she loved. Now, while the exchange between her and David, it might be extra spicy because of the personal reasons we just talked about, it also reflects the conflict of authority that all of Israel was experiencing. Which house is more worthy of the throne? When you look at the way that their dialogue is formatted, it becomes pretty clear that this is actually the crux of the conflict. The dialogue is set in a chiastic structure, which is a common tool in writings from this era, used to emphasize a single main point. The first and second halves are mirror images of each other pointing toward whatever is at the center. This is maybe a little bit small, but I'm going to read it for you. How the king of Israel has honored himself today before the eyes of his female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself more contemptible than this, but by the female servants, by them I shall be held in honor. David is making a definitive statement that it's by God's authority that he's been appointed in this role, above her father and her father's descendants, and it is before God alone that he will submit. By removing his royal garments and participating in the celebration this way, David establishes what will become the essence of his influence and legacy, something that sets him apart from other kings and still rings true to this day. That his identity as a worshiper is more important than his identity as royalty. The influence that David has had over the way we come to God to worship is probably the most of any other single human from a shepherd boy to the anointed one, to an exile, to a king, to an exile again, to a king again, the one thing he never stops doing is directing his focus and energy and worship towards his God and leading others to do the same. So what do we learn from this? That God's glory is always more important than our status. That our identity as worshipers comes before our identity as friend, parent, sibling, boss, influencer, social elite, outcast, extrovert, introvert, ambivert. Noah, that one's for you. Athlete, actor, musician, tech bro, designer, plant dad, dog mom, people who've seen succession and people who haven't. We build our identities on these roles and descriptions because we want to feel known, unique, lovable, worth something. Whatever else you define yourself by, the foundation of your worthiness, the core of your identity, is someone who is loved by God and who loves God back. If we can make this the practice, the mantra, then no matter what changes in our life, we will always have a way back to God. We will always have a reason to worship. I think this is why David leaves the legacy that he does.
73 of the 150 psalms were written by David. To this day, we still set them to new melodies, use excerpts of them in our prayers, and look to them as examples of how to engage with God in the ups and downs of our lives. So let's take a look at some of the themes. I'm going to read you some summary titles of just a handful of David's psalms. As I do that, pay attention to the ones that pop out at you. Maybe take a deep breath. Close your eyes if you want. See if you find yourself in one of them. A morning prayer. Prayer for mercy during trouble. God our refuge. The deserted soul. Joy in God's presence. The Lord is my shepherd. Prayer for guidance and protection. A song of confidence. A prayer for help. Song of the thunderstorm. A prayer of distress. A psalm of praise and trust. A psalm of repentance. The Lord will sustain. The prayer of a troubled heart. The thirsty soul. God's power and works. A cry to God for help. The Lord is faithful. The prisoner's prayer. The warrior's psalm. The goodness of God. Even without reading the poems themselves, you can feel the expanse of David's life. His longing and his joy, his desperation, and his trust. He developed a lifestyle of faith and freedom of expression before the Lord. Every feeling, every experience became a prayer. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Do you think David would feel the freedom to dance and sing and shout for joy in the face of ridicule if he didn't also trust God to hold him at his lowest Half of David's psalms are lament, and he really lays it out on the table. Pain, fear, hopelessness, doubt, anger. It's the type of faith that really often gets overlooked. It's a type of faith that says, I believe you won't reject me if I show the worst parts of myself to you. That's vulnerability. Think about the most secure relationships in your life. Are they the ones where you only show your best sides? Or are they the ones that have been tested through fire and said, I love you still? Not only can God handle our weakness, he welcomes it. He wants all of you. That's why we say here that you come on your own terms. You don't have to put on a face when you come to church. We're here to meet with God not pretend to meet with God. So what act of worship requires faith for you right now? It won't be the same as the person next to you, and it won't be the same as you five years ago or ten years from now. The first example of this in my life is from eighth grade. To give you a visual aid, we've got a photo of me from around that age. There she is, all of her homeschooled glory. 
I grew up in church, but it was in junior high that I went to my first summer camp. I remember during one of the chapel services, nervously opening up my hands in this gesture that we do often at Bread during the song, Come, Lord Jesus, Come. It's kind of funny. I didn't plan that, but I'm sort of doing that in that photo. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for this meal. Um, it was a big deal to me in that moment because I was raised in a culture where emotion expressed through the movement of your body was seen as distracting and performative. I had basically no experience of the felt presence of the Holy Spirit. I was actually kind of afraid of what that was. I think looking back, I feared losing control because I didn't really trust that God was kind and gentle and loving. I believed those words in theory, but not in practice. And when I did let go and do this simple gesture as an act of faith, I experienced the goodness of God. For the first time in my life, I cried in the presence of love, acceptance, and wholeness. I remember just weeping and then realizing that everyone in the room was weeping. Tissues were being passed around. We were all just like crying and singing and blowing our noses. And like nobody cared. It was, there was like 80 junior hires in a room. Most self-conscious phase of life sobbing together, and no one cared because the presence of God was there. In 2019, it was coming back to church for the first time after 15 years of worship ministry, where I was told, amongst other things, that only part of me was welcome, that I had gifts that I could partially use in the context of music when under the authority of a man, it was sitting in the back of that new little church with a funny name called Bread, determined to hate it, but crying through worship because I had been given the permission for the first time in my life to come on my own terms. It was choosing to come up for prayer at the end of that service and letting Jesus speak love and truth into my heart. In 2022, it was speaking in tongues for the first time, once again here at the front, in a place where I now felt safe to look like a fool in pursuit of God. And right now, today, it's this. It is stepping into a calling to preach the truth, even through internalized shame and voices telling me that I do not belong here. Please hear this. You do not have to have perfect faith to step out in faith. You do not have to be without fear, worry, doubt, or pain to engage with the presence of God. Maybe for you today, faith-driven worship means saying with David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Maybe it means trusting him enough to actually lay it all on the table. Hurt, shame, fear, all of it. Maybe it means releasing the outcomes of your circumstances to him, knowing that he promises to work goodness and life out of every situation. The Lord is my strength and my shield. 
My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. Maybe it means just singing loud enough for people to actually hear you. This one's weird in LA, because like 95% of people are secretly hoping to get discovered every moment of their lives. <laughs> but I'm talking about those of you who are more like my dad. The man's range is all of three notes, and I promise you he cannot tell one from the other. But my dad will sing his heart out on every song, every time. Maybe it means jumping for joy, clapping, clapping, dancing, moving your bodies. Some of you guys do this so naturally, and for others it's a struggle. That's all right. Trust him with your joy. Maybe it means coming up for prayer or praying for someone else, speaking in tongues, practicing the spiritual gifts, going to Alpha, being part of 4 by 4 whatever that next step is for you. Lean into the type of worship that requires faith and the type of faith that leads you to worship. I'm gonna invite the band up. We're gonna sing a song. And then as always, we'll have some time at the end for you to receive prayer if you'd like. I wanna encourage you to use this time to just tune in Re-engage. Let Jesus meet you where you are and take you deeper into his love. Let him shower you with blessings as you dwell with him and as he dwells with you.